heading in a different direction today. We're going to be going to the New Testament. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Ch- Timothy chapter 4. You may want to turn me down just a slight bit, if you don't mind. Thanks, Spencer or Ivan. Just a little bit. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, which reads, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we're overwhelmed, Lord that you are our God. And Lord, that you saved us from your wrath and your anger. And you've placed us, Lord, into the safety of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are here today as a declaration of our our love and devotion to you, Lord, that we are believers and we are gathered here not to exalt any minister or any person, but we're here to exalt Christ together as the family of God. And Lord, let us see that, the value in that. And let us be grateful that we have this privilege of being here today. That this isn't some empty and dry ritual, Lord, but this is truly your people coming together as one man to worship the living God. Lord, I ask you to bless this message today. Let it make sense for your glory. Let there be, Lord God, a a time of reverence as we begin to um, expound the word of God, but to think seriously on what it is that you'd have to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I would uh, like to deal with the subject of pulpit growth in direct opposition to the obsessed view that we see almost in every mainstream church in America, which goes by the title Church Growth. I think it's important for a couple of reasons that we dive into this. Is I think it's for the, the benefit of those who preach the word, teach the word, but also the benefit of the church, what they should expect from the pulpit. Um, realizing that the pulpit itself really is the governing factor of of how the church does biblically grow according to scripture opposed to what we see in the world today that's propagated behind most pulpits and wanting to grow their church through um, adhering to the sinful nature of humanity in order to get popularity and to fill their churches so in the end of the day the churches that the pastors have great incomes beautiful houses, big cars, 
and a very personal personality driven cult. Um, one side is all about growing numerically at the expense of truth, and the other is about growing spiritually at the denial of the world. For the Bible says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And I believe one of the major problems that we face today, especially with the church in America, is our view of the ministry of the pulpit. And this is a true statement. How we view the pulpit, listen now, will be in direct correlation to how we view the Word of God. And how we view the Word of God will not only affect the one who is preaching, but even more, the health of the church. You could trace every great move of God, whether that be revival, reformation, or restoration in any society, it can always be traced back to one thing, and that is the pulpit. Same goes for a degenerate society when gross darkness begins to cover the land. It can always be traced back to what? The pulpit. First Peter 4.17 declares, for the, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, not second, begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Nothing has brought about more devastation to this country than sloppy preachers who inevitably have sloppy pulpits that what? Produce sloppy Christians. This is a route that God always takes in the benefit of his people. Today we have become obsessed with church growth, popularity, prestige, fame, and a fat bank account, opposed to the Puritan biblical view of the pulpit growth, which produces the sanctifying realities of godliness, obedience, holiness, and a true biblical worship at its purest form. As Pastor Steve Lawson once puts it, God will honor the preaching that honors Christ, but abandon the pulpit that abandons him. Obviously, we all know that growing a church is not a, not a bad thing, nor is it unbiblical. It's seen in Scripture. It's a beautiful thing to see Christ's church growing numerically within the context of the local body. But this is not what I'm addressing this morning. What I'm addressing today is the unhealthy fixation on numbers and the many pragmatic methods used to get there and how this behavior has literally shipwrecked the church in America. We have spent millions in our accommodations to please the public while at the same time producing man-pleasing, man-centered, man-baby preachers who are not only offended by God's word, but have actually offended a holy God. These entrepreneurial pulpiteers have all but destroyed biblical Christianity in this country. Church growth tactics and methods are geared towards the abandonment of truth rather than an adherence to it, but rather its appeal is to sinful flesh and the unregenerate heart of man, the pleasure-seeking, self-absorbed individual that needs to be stimulated by the world in order to remain in his seat and not exiting the building. It really is a sad place to be if we're not careful. We can definitely see, as I'm going to show you here, 
um, the detriment and why we're at where we're at in this country and why we can look around and see the decimation of a nation based upon an unbiblical pulpit. It's really too. It really is true. If you have an unbiblical pulpit, you have unbiblical, I hate to use the word, but a false version of Christianity in this country that, listen, if you're raised in a certain atmosphere, you know, you would say this, say a Mormon family, right? We know as a cult. The children who are raised in the context of this family doesn't believe it's a cult because it's what they've been raised in. It's what they believe this is a true Christianity and they operate from that context that it's true. And I believe the same way. Yes, I believe there's people that are purposely deceived, self-deceived on purpose or know it's a cult and know it's bad. But I think there's a portion of the Christianity that's been so so propagated in this country that has become the norm for Christianity in this country and it's unbiblical and it's destroying our nation. We can look at politicians, we can look at the government, we can look at the sins of the people, we can look at the child traffickers, the pornographers, the prostitutes and all these things and blame them. But if the church isn't biblical in its operation and method, first of all doctrinally, but also its service unto the world, um, things are only going to get worse. And this, is, this is what the Bible is very, very clearly, God is telling us that we need to be light in dark places, but you're not going to be light in dark places if you have a false gospel and you've been trained up in a false gospel where you think everything's about you and you're entitled to everything and you should get everything opposed to Christ saved me because I couldn't save myself. And the reality of this is that this same gospel that's converted such a radically depraved, vile sinner like myself is the only hope for any nation or for any people. And I think this is the part that we don't want to talk about anymore. Why? Because we're self-indulgent. We turn the church into a business. Not saying that business principles were originally designed by by God to have order. But the reality is, is that they find a way where they can manipulate a situation or an organization to fill their pockets. I like what Paul Washer once said of our nation. He said, this country is not gospel hardened. It is gospel ignorant because most of its preachers are. And that is a true statement. In an article written by Martin Murphy titled The Church Growth Movement, he writes, The advocates of the church growth movement have agendas that are incongruous with what the Puritans called the regulative principle and what we call a reformed world and life view. If the world church, I'm sorry, if the word church was removed, it would appear that it was no more than a progress report of an entrepreneurial enterprise. Their goal is success. And success is what? In numbers. That's how you value a church, right? You go there, how many, how many people are there? It's the first question that people ask me when I tell my pastor at church, how big is it? As if it really matters. You know, but to them, and to the context of what they have been, in, in the DNA of American Christianity, if the idea is if you don't have a lot of people, you're a failure. Right? And that's it. It's not true. Reality is it doesn't matter about how many people are in the church, but it matters the depth of the people that are in the church and which counts. I mean, Christ and his disciples, right? You know, a limited amount of people. He never went with the crowds. He never, he never gauged his spirituality on how many people followed him or stuck with him. As a matter of fact, on his way to the cross, he says to his disciples, are you going to leave too? Everybody left him by the time he got to the cross, other than the women. So, 
we know this idea about numbers is truly gener generated from, uh, manufactured from the heart of man. The watershed affects it, it, its way to pastors who are constantly challenged by sessions and congregations to consistently grow, grow, grow. The pastor sees the glitter and the gold. He needs an increase in his salary. So why not employ these church growth movement methods? And he goes on to write, no Christian can be opposed to church growth, but all Christians must be opposed to church growth methodology that is not in keeping with the Word of God. Amen. So th this is really what it is. It's not about growing your church. We'd all love to see a, a larger church. I know we're always praying, seeking the Lord that God would add families here. We would love to see the church grow, but not by unbiblical measures, by any means, or methods. Um, according to Oz Guinness in his book, Dining with the Devil, the mega church movement flirts with modernity. He writes, his research showed that the modern mega churches have been built on the philosophical and structural pattern of America's recent shopping malls, which in turn have long been described as cathedrals of consumption. One stop shopping is the theme common to all the mega churches. The biggest offer not only spiritual attractions, but such features as movie theaters. Weight rooms, saunas, roller rinks, and racquetball courts. Once a growing church reaches the critical mass of 1,000, the sky's the limit for its financial and organizational potential for further growth through a myriad of dazzling modern insights and technologies. The modern megachurches are a prominent new feature of the church growth movement. This fixation on church growth and success was literally intoxicating to the new business model pastor. Pragmatism was key and truth was out. The larger your church was the larger that you were. This was now the new age of the Christian church. Bigger meant better, numbers meant success, and the size and scale of your church determined how God's favor was distributed. The small church was a thing of the past. Now the competition was on. Similar to what we read in Genesis 11.4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Isn't that it, really, at the, at the seed level? It's all about this. I mean, what a terrible, terrible abomination, right, is that we would ever dare use the church as a means for wealth and popularity, right, and success, uh, by the worldly means. I mean, success is that we're faithful to God's word, right? We're faithful to Christ and we're faithful to one another. I mean, this is are the things that the church is all about. Um, I believe the church growth movement has done more damage to today's church than what even Spurgeon dealt with during the downgrade. In his day, derelict pastors would make it very clear what side they stood on. Um, today, everything is smeared together. And we're all left with the blurry picture of the church, worldly congregations, and it all boils down to one thing, a failed pulpit. Mm -hmm. And this is where, where, where we're at today. Everything's kind of smeared together. You ever notice that? It's like, what in the world? Everything's kind of muddy and unclear. It's like, what, you know, what is going on here? And this is why I think it's so important to deal with the idea of church growth versus pulpit growth. I think that for a church, um, you deserve... You deserve uh, the truth and the truth preached. The body of Christ, God's people, his bride whom he died for, you know, should be ministered the truth 
of Scripture and faithful preaching and obviously be connected with a body of believers who are grounded in truth, opposed to just being hoodwinked and bewitched, brought in here, and then just feed your appetites, and then have to try to disciple it when you go nuts when we tell you no. This certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul's agenda at all. Actually, his was the exact opposite. We see here Paul giving some pretty serious instructions to, to his protege, Timothy, as he prepares him to be faithful in preaching the gospel and in the whole work of the ministry. Now, mind you, these verses we're reading in 2 Timothy, remind you, this is not, he's not talking about Timothy going out and being a great evangelist by any means. He's not. He's not talking about missions. He's talking about the local church. He's given him instructions, pastoral instructions, of what to do while in the church. A lot of you like to take these verses and apply them to the context of outdoor evangelism, which is fine, but the reality is, is that this is not what, what Paul's dealing with with Timothy. He's given him instructions specifically, as these pastoral epistles are, written instructions on how to conduct himself as a pastor. And not necessarily as just a wandering preacher, right? This is really serious. It's good to know that because we have lost the whole idea and value of the local church in this country. We can just sit home on Sunday morning, kick our legs up, stay in our jammies, pop some popcorn, and watch old Billy Graham crusades, right? And that becomes our, our, our church for Sundays. People believe that this can be their church. I don't need to go to the church anymore because at the turn of the century, the whole idea of inconvenience was thrown out the window. Everything needs to be convenient. Everything can be, you know, with rationalism that came in. I'm not going to get into all of that. But it gave us this idea that the local church is no longer important. That we could just skip the local church. We can skip church on Sundays. It doesn't really matter. We can do this instead. Not a big deal. And really, it, all that's been fashioned, really, the pathology of that mindset has all been fashioned from rationalism. It's been fashioned from this idea that it really just doesn't matter to be in church on Sunday mornings. Otherwise, you know, I think you would see more people in church. I think people would be more respectful of the leadership. They would be more respectful to one another. They would give to the ministry. Not that you were out after your money, but I think it just comes along with the territory of a regenerate heart that truly understands the Word of God and the local church. The doctrine, by the way, of the local church. And I think now it's so frowned upon that it just becomes one of these options on Sunday mornings. Go to church today, or we can rent some movies, or we can watch Billy Graham, or we can do whatever, whatever, whatever. I wouldn't definitely tell you to go watch Billy Graham, but I would just say, hey, you know, I'm just using it as an example uh, where people can pretty much just call church whatever they want. We'll just have home church today or whatever, whatever. It's just not biblical. You know, there's no, nothing wrong with having a devotion at home. I think we all should, but we've got to remember, there is a local church in Scripture. I mean, a majority of the, of the New Testament, especially in the, in the Pauline epistles, and the epistles are written to the local church, not ri written to maverick, nomad, evangelists just wandering around on the planet. This is really detailed um, dealing with the local church. When, when uh, we see here Paul giving some pretty serious instructions to his project, Timothy, as he prepares him to be, a, be faithful in preaching the gospel and the whole work 
of the ministry. Paul recognized that his earthly life was like coming to an end. And the book of 2 Timothy is essentially Paul's last words. We know the last written words, last testimonies, are usually counted as the most important. So he was dealing with this reality. He was letting Timothy know. In 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, through 8, he says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, this is where it gets great, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. He's saying, you know what? God will reward me. That reward gives me the endurance to be able to deal with all of the adversity. The problem is the contemporary church wants the award now. They want all the awards here and now. They want all the titles. They want all the trophies. They want all the money. They want all the fame. They want all the attention. They want all the credit. Exactly what they should be getting. They should die to themselves rather than live to get for themselves. And this is what Paul's saying. He said, I fought the good fight. I fought. Listen, fights, when you think of a fight, it's not easy. When you're fighting somebody, you think of a fight or a fist fight or a boxing match, UFC. These people train. They beat their bodies, as Paul said, into submission. There's preparation. There's training. There's blood, sweat, and tears. There's failures. There's even points you actually get completely knocked out cold. But there's this, there's this idea here when he's bringing this attitude of a good fight, he's bringing the illustration of this is what the Christian life is all about. It is a fight until the end. So when he says, I have fought the good fight, that's a powerful saying. We just look at that and just breathe over it's not a big deal. The reality is that this fight that he fought is a good fight. And it's the fight each and every one of us are in today. It's no simple task. As a matter of fact, Paul does not waste any time beating around the bush. He states the mission clearly. Paul actually charges Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is no bounce house education, but an admonition to be ready where many, if most, fail. Prepare yourself. This is no program, playground, or playpen, but leadership that demands authority, precision, and compassion. It's not for the faint-hearted. This is the master's call. We must preach the word. We must preach the word. Richard Baxter said, It is no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God in the name of our Redeemer. He said, It's no small matter to do what I'm even doing today. And it's ridiculous some of these clowns get behind the pulpit and dare treat the pulpit or God's table in such a way that they do today. It's a mockery. It's foolishness. It's buffoonery. It's arrogance at the highest level that they had the audacity, first and foremost, to call themselves a Christian church and then stand up there like an like a imbecile, like a comedian, and, 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 and play those games when they're standing on holy ground. Now you say, well, I wouldn't say that because their church isn't even a real church. Their pulpit's even a fake pulpit. Yeah, that might be so, but the reality is even counterfeiting the truth is a scary place to stand in. 
The Puritans believed that the pulpit, quoted from them, the pulpit is the most dreadful place on earth. The pulpit is the most dreadful place on earth. If it's not, then it should be. They went on to say that the pulpit is the place where the voice of God is heard, the word of God is audibly expressed and expounded by careful and responsible exegesis to God's chosen people. Charles Spurgeon once said, after a sermon was finished, he would immediately turn around, well it says of Charles Spurgeon, that once he preached, he would immediately turn around, kneel upon the chair behind him in earnest, pleading that God would forgive him for doing such a feeble and shoddy job in preaching. I mean, think about that for just a moment. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest gifts to humanity in the, in the area of preaching the Word of God faithfully until his death, would say that when he got done preaching, he would literally just wither up in a ball and pray and ask God to forgive him for such a mess. That's how he viewed his pulpit. There was no ordinary thing. was no light thing. But the heaviness and the dreadful know-about that what he's doing is he's declaring God's word that he doesn't even deserve to do to God's people. And the accountability and the responsibility attached to that was no small manner, manner at all. 2 Timothy 1.13 and 1.8, Paul told Timothy, Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. And this is it, you know. As, as, as pastors and what, you're, what the church should expect from their pastor is that he'll, he holds fast to the pattern of sound words. And then in one eight he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with what? A holy calling. You therefore must what? Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now get these images in your mind when you're thinking of pastoral ministry and think of the things that are going on today. In no way am I declaring this, this, this message today and lifting myself up like I'm perfect. Because I, that is not my goal whatsoever. My goal is to be reminded as well so I can learn what to do and what not to do. You know, this is telling me as well, this is what you need to do. This is a holy calling, Jeff. You must endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But I'll tell each and every one of you today, whether you're behind the pulpit or not, your life is a pulpit to others. And you need to live your life that's categorized in the same way that you would expect me to live as well. You too are in hardships. You too must train like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has what? Enlisted him as a soldier. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more what? Ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is dealing with the local church. And everything that happens within the context of the local church, it's no small thing to be here. you got all kinds of exciting things going on. 
in the church. Trust me, there's a lot to do while we're here on this planet. But he goes on in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, but you have carefully followed, he says, my doctrine. But not only that, this is where it really comes into play, where many of us fail, or I've failed many times. He says, manner of life. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, but also you have followed my manner of life. Not my preaching skills, not my oratory skills, not my evangelistic skills, not my church planning skills, but my manner of life. Everything that I'm doing besides this, it's what you do at home, as my wife has told me before. You know, you may be able to preach a good sermon, but what does your life look like as unfolds the rest of the week? And this is where many of us fail, right? We look at these things, it's like, well, yeah, follow my doctrine, follow my doctrine, and you'll be the first to pin someone up against the corner on Facebook when they don't, right? But what about your manner of life? What about your integrity and your character? What about the way that we speak to our wives and wives the way you speak to your husbands? How are we raising our children, you know, in, in, in different manners? These things in our lives that God sees when no one else is around. And we can all become performance junkies, right? We can put on a great show in front of other people and make everyone think that we live this just perfect life. But in reality, we are not living a life to where anybody would want to follow our manner of life. Oh, they'll follow our doctrine, but they certainly would never want to participate or follow your life. It's a good thing to think about. And then he goes on to say purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and be assured of knowing from whom you have learned them from. In other words, you learned them from Paul. He was giving him solid doctrine, right? If he said, you follow my doctrine, my life. But here he's saying this too. You must trust the one who's giving you these doctrines as well. Maybe a good Calvinist and of all his theology, and in the perfect place, every dot, every I, and cross every T, everything is perfect, but he lives like the devil, Monday through Friday. It just doesn't make any sense. And do you trust the person proclaiming the words to you? And we want to be trusted. It's like the whole idea, we're talking about David and Goliath. You know, we, we look at the life of David, and how he was a type and picture uh, of Christ, you know. But we look at David and we get so enthralled with his life and his heroism, right? We're taken away in that. But you ever thought about this for a moment? You're probably more like Goliath than you are David. If you think about it, you know, you think about what David was dealing with. He's dealing with Goliath, who really was a representation of an antithesis of who God is. It was, it was the enemy, the imposter, the sinner, sin itself. And this is sometimes, you know, our behavior in our manner of life, doesn't follow along with our doctrine at all. That's the most annoying thing ever, is when you see someone with great doctrine, but they're the most hateful people on the planet. You know what I mean? Boy, he's, got, he's good on theology. he got the whole Bible memorized. But he's a complete jerk to everybody else. He's hateful, unloving. He doesn't, he doesn't have any fruit of the Spirit at all, but his theology is immaculate. 
I've known people like that. And I'm certainly at times I've been like that myself. One thing we got to be careful with that we're we're watching over these things. We don't want to be an imposter. Do you want to be an imposter? Of course the answer is no. But that's a very scary thing that there are imposters very close to truth but they're not of the truth. In a study according to the study done by Ligonier says this among the evangelicals in the US 31% listen of evangelicals in the United States say science disproves the Bible. 33% say gender is a choice. Think about that. It's almost half. 38% say that Jesus is not God. 62%, more than half, say that God accepts all religions. 62%. 62% say that the Holy Spirit is the force. You've watched way too many Star Wars movies. 66% say that people are good by nature. It's almost 70%. 75%, ready for this? Say God first created Jesus. 75%. And you wonder, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on right here. The pulpit is response. I understand people are deceived. They, they, they want these meddling menaces of, of men to preach to them these, these doctrine of demons. They like it. It comforts them. It appeals to their selfish desires. They love it. They want this stuff. They want it piled up on them. But at the end of the day, these guys that are, that are peddling these false doctrines to the church will be judged harshly for it. But as you can see, judgment has come upon this nation pretty horrifically for this kind of behavior. Look at the percentages. Now, I mean, we can go on and on about whether they're true Christians or non-Christians or false converts or whatever, but a reality, a consensus of where this nation stands as those who would call themselves Christians, the percentages are really high in them believing in doctrines of demons. Our text reads, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, extort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Outlined in our text today, which we're not going to be able to get into all these, um, what we, I'm going to break this down into two portions. But outlined in our text today, the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, gives us five principles of pulpit growth, five sanctifying realities. Number one, uh, we, we, we need to be all in. We need to be all in. Number two, we need to preach all of God's Word. Number three, we need to be ready at all times. Four, we need to be watchful in all things. And number five, we need to endure all afflictions. This was outlined here, which gives us great application in how to deal with this subject this morning for both the preacher 
and the church. Number one, all in. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I charge you therefore before God and Christ who will judge, listen, the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. You're either in, you're either all in or you're all out. And there's no such thing as neutrality. We can't have one foot in the world and one foot into the kingdom and think that somehow our Christianity is beneficial whatsoever. It's a sobering verse, and this is the one that really sobered me up and put the fear of God in me. When Paul says, I charge you, singular to him, not plural, singular, to him alone, I charge you, Timothy, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you can judge me, therefore, in front of Jerry and Glenn. It's going to be tough, but at the end of the day, we'll get through it. But when he's judgment, he's saying, you are being judged by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a sobering reality. I hold this, I hold this to be the reality that um, you're being charged in the ministry of pastoral ministry to the congregation. I'm charging you. I think if we would say this more to pastors who are getting in behind these pulpits, that you would tell them that you are charged, therefore, before God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, who at his appearing, he will judge you. He's going to judge you by this ministry. And I think if people understood that sobering reality, you're not going to be judged by men. You're going to be judged. You're being charged today before the tribunal of King Christ in your behavior behind this pulpit and what you feed my sheep. It's a sobering verse. In other words, you're accountable before God. And this isn't just a career move or a promotion or a title idol, but it's war. It is war. The call to pastoral ministry is the same condition as the call to follow Christ. Because a lot of times it's easier to sit in the seats or the pews, right, and say, ah, you know, we're going to be watching you, Pastor, with our magnifying glass, right? But the reality is, it's on you as well. That's right. You became a Christian. You repented of your sin. You were baptized and came before and submitted yourself to the new master, dying to the old master, coming out of the grave to a new master. You're held accountable in the same way. Yeah, I get leadership. Is that a higher accountability, a higher judgment? I'm not saying that. But there's no one being let off the hook here. The church as well needs to be reminded of these as well and letting them know that it's not half you and half Christ. It's God is the almighty, not the half mighty. He is the almighty God. This is like, he's not sharing his kingdom with you. It's his kingdom or no kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And this is how serious it is that we will give an account of how we handle the word of God who will judge the living and the dead. Compromise and accommodation will not work. Compromise the truth and you accommodate the world. And that's, that's 
exactly where the dividing line is. Francis Schaeffer writes, here's the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. There's only one word for this, and he uses the word accommodation as the greatest evangelical disaster, is that we, we instead of standing on the truth for truth as truth, what we've done is that we've compromised by what? Accommodating all of the worldliness. And we want to accommodate our lifestyle, right? How many times have you been in a sin, right? Where you just, for whatever reason, you couldn't get out of that sin, or you continually committed that sin. What do you naturally do if you're not going to repent? You accommodate that sin by twisting the scripture and making things out to the point to now where you have changed the very God of the Bible to some other God that you've chosen to worship and fight for and fight uh, to promote to others, which is extremely, extremely dangerous. Vody Bauckham says, suffering is common for us all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided completely. All you have to do is compromise. All you got to do. Exodus 32.26, we see the dividing line uh, um, that was laid out by Moses. It says that Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him and go to hell. One or the other. You're either following Christ or you're following the evil one, Satan. It's true. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If you want to see a pure church, then you need to preach from the pure word of God. God alone transforms the church through the word, the preach word of God. That's why it's so important not to come up here with an agenda trying to push your ideas on people or even your views on people. You've got to let the Word of God be the theme. You follow it. You don't lead the Word. You follow the Word. Let the Word preach itself in context and explain itself through the Scriptures themselves. It's being faithful to the Word. Uh, The Puritans knew that to the degree they saw God in Scripture clearly, to that degree their ministries would be effective. Think about that for a moment. Stephen Lawson says, The spiritual life of any congregation and its growth in grace will never exceed the high watermark set by its pulpit. Basically it says no church will rise any higher than its pulpit. And that's true. You've got a delinquent, disgusting, vile, comical pulpit. You'll have the same things within, the, within your congregation as well. Number two, all of God's word. Um, we must accept all of God's word as being the truth from God himself. We must preach the word. Preach the word. All of God's word. And we have to be ready in season and out of season. There's nothing worse, in my opinion, for someone to be called to pastoral ministry and always be unprepared. Their sermons are never prepared. They're thrown, everything's thrown together because they're, they're so 
intoxicated with the idea of being a pastor and preaching a sermon, that that becomes almost like their drug of choice opposed to studying the Word of God throughout the week, being in communion with God throughout the week, being ready. It was said of uh, George Whitfield that he was, he was ready to preach the, the Word of God any time of the week, any day of the week, any hour of the week, any minute of the week. Why? Because he's always in the Word. He was always praying. He knew God. He knew the Word. So when he was called upon, he was ready. So you're called upon, oh, no, 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 now you're scrambling around. And I get preparation is good. I spend about 30 hours a week on preparation for a sermon. I spend 40. Um, I'm not a cut and paste pastor. I don't cut and paste, slap it together, pray that God will bless it and try to get through it. Um, you guys can pick up on that very quick anyways. But there's a lot of that going on in the church today. It's just people, they buy sermons, they copy them, plagiarize, jump up here, love the attention. It's American Idol every Sunday morning. Um, and it's just a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. We must come back to this reality. And I'm going to close with this. We'll pick up the rest later. Close with this reality, at least for now, is that um, we have got to understand the meaning of God's pulpit. This pulpit, what is it? It's just not up here as another podium for someone to come up here and give a good oratory or a good speech or a good talk or a good message. It's not that at all. This is really considered by all of our fathers of the faith in the past as being literally the holy table of God that a minister, when he comes up into this area of ministry, he must tremble. He must consider his ways and consider that before you start talking to people, you better be preaching the truth. Better not by selling them a bucket of lies and trying to make everybody laugh for 45 minutes straight with all your goofy, stupid stories. People want to hear the Word of God. They'll be instructed from the Word of God. They'll be instructed from me. In one sense, yes, because I'm the conduit, which God is using for this, which I don't even feel like I'm you know, qualified to be up here in the sense to where, where do we ever get to the point where I say I'm qualified to be up here? Once I say that, what happens? I'm disqualified, right? Because pride-driven. No one's worthy to be up behind this pulpit. No one's worthy in that sense. But that's why God calls people to do what he would have us to do. Um, So we must take the, the pulpit seriously, both from where I'm standing and from where you're sitting today. We must honor the Word of God and understand what it means and the benefit. Because otherwise... We fall prey to everything, every wind of doctrine that's out there, everything that calls himself a church. Next thing you know, we're calling Mormons brothers. You know, we're, we're doing all these, you know, doing these things that, that God hates, and we just want to accommodate everything because there's not a healthy pulpit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that it was communicated effectively today. Uh, Lord, that we can all glean. And Lord, I can, I can, I should be shuddering. I'm the one today that should be on their face, weeping and and broken and shattered at the reality that you'd use such a disgusting uh, wretch like me to preach your glorious gospel, Lord. And I'm even here, Lord, because of your grace and mercy, and for no other reason, Lord. 
And Father, I pray for the church today. I pray for the congregation here at 116, Lord, that they too benefited uh, from what was preached today and that your word did penetrate them and they would take a healthy look at their own hearts today and their view of the local church and their view of the pulpit, Lord. Let it rest on all of us today of why we're even here and what is the purpose of even being here and the judgment and the accountability that comes along with it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.